0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be in Matthew 27, Mark 15, and John 19. Matthew 27, Mark 15, and John 19. These are the three... Uh, Gospels that uh, cover this particular event. Luke uh, does not, interestingly enough. We may look at Luke for a couple of things, but not directly related to the scourging and the mockery. Scourging and mockery by Roman soldiers and Pilate's final attempt to release him. And uh, the scourging and mockery is featured in Matthew and Mark uh, and John. But then Pilate's final attempt to release him is all John. It's all John nineteen. All right. And you'll notice very short verses there. In Matthew twenty seven, it's only verses twenty seven through thirty. So you got four verses there. In Mark fifteen it's sixteen through nineteen. You got four verses there. But then in John nineteen it's one through fifteen. Why is that so long? Uh you know, why why does he has have to get so wordy <laughs> related to uh, well, Matthew and Mark already wrote what they wrote. Remember, John is the fourth and final gospel written decades after the other gospels were already not only published but disseminated, and uh, additional details that come in John's gospel that we don't have in the synoptic records. So we'll take some time to uh, to work our way through these as well. Let's get started with Matthew 20, uh, 27, 27. And before we do, let's open with a word of prayer and ask the Father to bless our time together, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you are the God of truth. Your word is truth. We are your children and uh, we worship you, Father, in spirit and in truth. We thank you, Father, that we have this uh, stability, this anchor, sure and steadfast, Father, that we can uh, rest confidently upon what you've revealed, Father. We're not tossed to and fro. We're not uh, drifting as so many are in this world where they... They become imitators of Pontius Pilate, Father. They throw up their hands and say, what is truth? Father, we uh, rejoice that you have made your will known, and we submit to you now at this time, setting aside distractions, asking, Father, for humility, asking, Father, that you would make clear what it is that we need to live and glorify your Son. And we thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All righty. Soldiers of the, uh, the soldiers of the governor, this is verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered round the whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Now the context for this follows the trials. Uh, you'll notice at the end of uh, this final section here when Pilate saw, verse 24, When Pilate saw what he's accomplishing, nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people uh, said, His blood be on us and on our children. They're going to regret those words. Those words are going to come to fruition in uh, 70 A.D. and they will face a uh, national destruction and tremendous wrath. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. All right. And so really, I would want to uh, change my slide from 27 through 30 and make it 26 through 30, because this scourging serves as a prologue. It serves as a uh, preview for what follows. And you'll see that under point one. So after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the Mockery of the soldiers and the things of what they're going to do here. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, took the reed, and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him, put his own garments back on him, and led him away, to be crucified, And then we get into the uh, crucifixion itself, uh, Siren of, uh, Cyrene, Simon of Cyrene here who helps carry the cross, and uh, the place of a skull and all the details of what follows. That's, we've got to save that for later episodes. All right, that's Matthew's record, all right? And so a couple of details here before we specify a few things. Pilate's not seen again after verse 26, all right? He uh, makes his final attempt. He washes his hands, and he releases Barabbas. Has Jesus scourged and hands him over. In the Matthew record, we never see Pilate again. Okay, at least not uh, in this the context of this uh, judgment, in the context of this um, uh, uh, of this uh, scourging or this beating or these the mockeries and the insults and so forth. Okay, now let's go over to Mark. Mark fifteen. Verses 16 through 19. Again, I would back it up to verse 15 for uh, the appropriate context on this. Um, again, you'll notice this is the closing of, of Pilate's trial. And uh, they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. In verse 14, Pilate says, what has he done? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more saying, crucify him. And so, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Almost word for word, very similar language. So, Pilate concludes his trial. He has Jesus scourged. And it appears to be right there in his viewing. And then he hands him over to be crucified. The handoff takes place after the scourging. And this is consistent both in... Matthew and in Mark. It's also a pretty brief reference, you'll notice. Just a single word, he had him scourged and handed him over. And then you've got these verses that follow with respect to the crown of thorns and the robe and the mocking and the spitting and the slapping in the face. Things that are actually not as bad as the scourging when it comes right down to it. So the soldiers took him away to the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole cohort. And they dressed him up in in purple. After twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off of him, put his own garments back on him, and they led him out to crucify him. All right, so there's the record by Mark. Again, do we see Pilate? Does Pilate come back into the picture anywhere in this process? No, all right, he does not. Um, let's go to uh, John. Remember, Luke does not cover this. Although we would see the end of Pilate's trial and him handing him handed off. That would be found in uh, in Luke, but the mockery is not. The mockery is not. So, um in Luke uh, 23, it just says uh, he released the man they were asking for. He'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and delivered Jesus to their will. And then the very next verse shows uh, Simon of Cyrene and carrying the cross, and on the way to uh, Golgotha. John 19. Then John 19. Now we start to pick up a few additional details. Does this mean that uh, Matthew and Mark were wrong? Not at all. Are these contradictions that we have to fall into an either-or understanding where one passage is true, the other passage is not true? Not at all. Every passage of Scripture is true. Every verse is true. When we harmonize the Gospels, we uphold the validity of every verse, of every word. All right. Matthew and Mark's failure to, or omission to not bring about the additional details that John brings about is not Error is not false; it is simply not consistent with their purpose to reveal such things. All right, John 19. Uh, again, chapter 8 is the release of uh, chapter 18 releases Barabbas. Chapter 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Again, it's mentioned as being up front and uh, in Pilate's presence. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a uh, purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. And then now notice something different. Pilate is is, uh, back in the picture again. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. All right, and so we can we can harmonize this very well with the Matthew and Mark record, whereby Pilate supervises the scourging and then departs. Where did he depart? Matthew and Mark didn't say where he went. He just disappeared. But John tells us he actually went outside to uh, address the crowds yet again. And while he's out there doing that, then the the crown and the robe and the mocking and the slapping and all the things that the soldiers will do because Pilate's not watching. Okay. And uh, so forth. So then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And this is what we're going to observe. And it's on the slide as Pilate's final attempt to release him. And uh, nothing else worked. None of the logic worked. None of the arguments worked. None of the verbal pleas worked. And what we have here is perhaps, uh, in my thinking anyway, a Uh, If the audible uh, arguments didn't sway anybody, how about a visual? How about a plea to emotions? How about a very visible presentation of a very ugly sight? Behold the man. And this is actually what he had attempted to do even earlier, where he said, look, I'll just scourge him and release him. And they said, no, we won't be happy with that. We won't be happy with that. Crucify him, crucify him. And so now he's actually done it. He's had Jesus scourged. We'll discuss that. It's not pleasant. Um, we'll discuss that. Uh, we're not going to overemphasize it either. We're not going to... I think the, the, the movies that do uh, are taking things entirely out of proportion. But he has Jesus scourged, and then he brings him out and puts him in front of everybody and says, See, is this what you want? We'll discuss that as, a, as an attempt, uh, a last-ditch attempt to uh, have him released. Behold the man. Behold the man, and like any man, subject to uh, violence and abuse and disfigurement and all the rest. Certainly, he's not uh, uh, a uh, a person of great attraction, someone that we would be attracted to. Um, well, Isaiah tells us that wasn't the case anyway, right? He had no stately form or majesty that we should be attracted to him. That's not the point. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, this is John nineteen six. You'd like to have it say, they saw him and they recoiled in horror. <laughs> they saw him and they repented. Or they saw him and they were ashamed. No, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Not content to have him uh, scourged. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him and said, We have a law. By that law he ought to die. Because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And if they are going to apply capital punishment, it won't be crucifixion. Their punishment is stoning. Under their law, under their uh, judicial uh, capital punishment procedure, it's going to be stoning, not crucifixion. But as soon as they say he made himself out to be the Son of God, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) You didn't say that in the last chapter. You said he claimed to be a king. You said he was going to lead an insurrection. You said, and and the first trial was all about his kingship. Actually, the first two trials that Pilate convened were all about kingship. Now, all of a sudden, what's this about being God, being the Son of God? And it's going to spark another conversation. It's going to spark Pilate going back in and interviewing Jesus yet again. All right. We'll uh, come back to some more of this. It's going to reach finally, then, the point uh, in verse 14. He brings them out and says, All right, behold your king. Quite a contrast to behold the man. Behold your king in verse 14. And uh, we have no king but Caesar in verse 15. Isn't that something? So then he handed them over, handed him over to them to be crucified. All right, so this is what we've got to deal with. And uh, really, four main points of study with some sub points and some details. First of all, point one, Matthew and Mark present Pilate's scourging of Jesus as a prologue to his additional mockery. Matthew and Mark present Pilate's scourging of Jesus as a prologue to his additional mockery. The scourging is a prologue. As I said, it's Matthew 27, 26, or Mark 15:15 15, 15, verses that... Strictly speaking, aren't even in this episode. They belong to the last episode. They belonged in the uh, in the verse division that was outlined in uh, in episode 33, for example, rather than episode 34. It's a prologue to the additional mockery. And when you study the the nature of what these scourgings are, the the the, the meat being ripped off the bone with the lashes of the of the leather and and uh, metal and so forth, um, it really is horrendous, and, uh, and of course, special effects can do some amazing things. You almost thought that Caviezel, was that the actor 's name who was the actor that played Jesus? I, you know seemed to me like like he really got scourged in order to to, to play that part, <laughs> right I thought, wow, how do they do that without actually scourging the the real actor you know just the nature of photography and special effects and, and the things they do. Um, but to me, that is the most painful part. That is the most, you know, being spit, being slapped, putting a crown of thorns. Now, I imagine that hurt. The crown of thorns pressed into the skull. Um, uh, you know, of course, even that we're, we're, we're reading between the lines, right? Did, did, did any of these verses say pressed into his skull? It just said crown of thorns. All right, so we, we, we try to add a little bit of a vivid vividness to it. OK, Maybe it was pressed into a skull, sure. But after being scourged, would he even if even feel that anymore? I mean, is he already is his nervous system already overwhelmed with all the, the rest of the anguish and the agony? Certainly the slaps, the spitting, the the uh, slaps by the reed, things of that nature. the purple robe, the hail, king of the Jews, the mockery. In the aspects there. Does that seem like a letdown? Does that seem like after the scourging, the scourging was worse than the mockery? Okay. And we might think that. I think that. Oh, Maybe I'm alone in this. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting that this is the order that it's presented in. And I think it's quite telling. I think it's quite telling because who's motivating all this? Satan's motivating all this. Right? And... What you know? If a man's been scourged, you're going to add the insult to injury. Is that what you're doing? Okay, and uh, and all the mockery and all of that. I mean, it only there's, there's no reason for it. So why do it? What, what, what do the soldiers get out of it? What, what, what little thrill or charge do they get out of it? All right. The only uh, the only thing feasible is that it's actually. Inspired related to what the adversary himself is desiring to accomplish. And part of, the, uh, um, <laughs> part of the nature of satanic dissatisfaction is it's never enough to simply win. It's never enough to get your way. But then after you've gotten your way, what do you want to do beyond that? Gloat, taunt, diminish, Show how small you are by the uh, insults to pride and all the rest of this. You know, um, if if Jesus had Satan's pride, yeah, I expect this would have been pretty tough for him to go through. But since Jesus has ultimate humility, uh, I don't think the the purple robe or the mocking or the spitting, I don't think that bothered Jesus in the slightest. All right. We better ask ourselves this. I think there's a lot of a lot of things. And and we, we teach our children this, you know. Okay, they're teasing you. So what? All right, the mockery. So what? Mockery only works if you have a pride issue that feeds off of it. Okay? If you have humility, you can pray for those who persecute you. You can love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you count it all joy when when men insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Mockery loses power at that point unless you have pride. Mockery only has power when you have pride. So there's some different things that we can see here, but the scourging is a prologue, and that I find to be remarkable, a prologue to the mockery. Now, Matthew and Mark use a very particular term, different than the the general term that's found in John. So we can take a look at these as well. Uh, Matthew and Mark both use um, phragalao, which is not even Greek. It's a loan word from Latin. Uh Matthew and Mark both use fragalao, P H R A G E L L O O. Fragalao and it's uh it comes from the Latin flagellum is the Latin expression uh, referencing the Uh, the uh, scourging. We saw some of these, by the way, if you were with us in the Corinthians series, 2 Corinthians, because five times Paul received from the Jews 39 lashes. All right? Plus, he also, three times he he received the rod. We had the the catalog of of, uh, hardships that Paul went through. And at that time, I showed you the difference between a scourging and a flogging. All right, And the difference that the, the Latins, the Romans had different terms depending on whether it was a metal chain, whether it was a leather whip, whether it, was a, uh, it had the, the metal spikes and so forth. The Latins had all different terms for all of that. Well, this is uh, the harshest one imaginable in the sense of the flagellum in Latin. The fragello is the verb. 5417 is the strongest concordance number. One of those strongest concordance numbers is wrong. They're not both the same. Uh, 54.17, I think 54.16 perhaps. I'll look that up and fix the slide for next week. Uh, but this is the only place where the verb occurs. The noun occurs in John chapter 2 when Jesus makes one of these and starts flipping over tables in the temple. Jesus makes a flagellion of cords. He takes a bunch of cords and he puts them together in a flagellion. I'm sorry, frogellion. P-H-R. In Latin it's F-L the P H R A G E L L I O N A or Fragelion is only used once in the New Testament and that's the one that Jesus made when he um, when he drove out the money changers in John two fifteen all right now they're only used here in the New Testament and never used in the Septuagint never used in the church fathers pretty unique terminology and I think the uh, the uh, Small uh, usages indicates, really, we shouldn't put a huge emphasis on it, right? <laughs> do you put a, a massive emphasis on something that barely shows up anywhere in the Bible? Why is it, when Hollywood wants to portray this, that they want to portray the gruesome? I went back and I checked uh, the other day, and uh, the, the Passion of the Christ, I want to pick on just one movie because they all do this, all right, but For example, The Passion of the Christ is two hours long. It's 120 minutes. A full 10% of that movie, 12 minutes, was the scourging. Right? And all the gory detail of meat ripped off the bone and so forth. Um, Why? You come away with the impression that it's the physical suffering that somehow meant something. What did the physical suffering accomplish? Is that what saved me? Only if I'm going to misapply by his wounds I am healed. okay? By his stripes I am healed. Now that is a prophecy and that is a reality, but let's not misapply it to the Roman scourging. I'll show you what I mean as we get to Isaiah 53. So let's not uh, put an undue emphasis on on things. I wonder if uh, on a certain level, if uh, this was, in fact, a, uh, a murder attempt, Satan would have been very happy if he could have killed him with a scourging. See, and obviously, what would, our, what would have happened to our atonement if Jesus would have died before he got to the cross? So it's not a, a bad strategy on Satan's part to try to kill Jesus before he can get to the cross. All right. Now, John's parallel text uses mastagao. Mastagao, now this is a more general term. This is a Greek word, and this is the one we would expect to find in Matthew and Mark if we weren't borrowing Latin expressions. Uh, mastagao uh, applies to whipping, all right, any kind of whipping. Not necessarily uh, a, a multiple threaded flail that has, you know, um, whatever. Uh, it could be a single, a single whip, a single lash, or multiple lashes. It's just a generic term for whipping, Mastigao, M-A-S-T-I-G-O-O. A couple of our ah verbs that uh, you don't get in first year Greek. The Omicron Omega endings. M-A-S-T-I-G-O-O. Number 3146 has seven New Testament uses. And um, not all of them are here. We'll take a look at these. Beyond the New Testament, it has 30 Septuagint uses, including Proverbs 3.12. One that's significant because that's the one that's quoted in Hebrews that we'll look at when we look at Hebrews 12.6. One that hopefully will become very particular for you and for me. Because one thing we want to walk away from today, when you walk out of here on this fine rainy day, is not so much that Jesus got whipped, but you get whipped. I get whipped. God the Father whoops us because He loves us. there's an application to this that we better start understanding. And if we don't, we're going to get more of it. (laughs) All right. And we're going to get enough of it anyway. uh, But we ought to embrace that which he gives us and learn from it so that hopefully um, we don't need the next round uh, to learn from that. Four times the apostolic fathers, including one that I think is significant because it quotes Proverbs 3.12. Hundreds of classical uses. See, you read secular Greek and Homer and Iliad. There's, there's a lot of whipping that goes on in the in the ancient world. We also have the noun mustix. Mustix, number 3148. That has six New Testament uses. And uh, and a shortened verb, kind of an abbreviated verb. Uh, mustizo has one use. And I think it's just a lazy form of mustagao, to be honest. Uh, but mustizo... Is uh, finds itself in uh, Acts twenty two twenty five, and so this is the root family that we would include in uh, in our word study. So let's take a look at some of these. Uh, we should be familiar, I hope, with uh, the bulk of them. Matthew ten seventeen. Matthew ten seventeen, as the Lord sends his disciples out two by two. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. That's mustagao. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour What you are to say, for it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Okay, different elements we can take with respect to that. This is a message to the twelve apostles. It uh, primarily will have its ultimate fulfillment in the tribulation of Israel. It's going to be fulfilled by the believers uh, after the church is concluded by uh, the uh, Jewish believers in the great tribulation. But it had an application in their own day. They went through persecution. They went through hardship for his sake. Uh, any application we draw in the church age is going to be secondary application in the church age because this was uh, this was primarily a uh, Jewish context. Uh, we're not given over to the synagogues for scourging, for example, in the church age. Or that will happen in the uh, in the uh, it happened historically to the disciples after Christ's resurrection, and it'll happen again in the tribulation. All right. Over to chapter twenty and verse nineteen. There's probably more we could say with respect to that. Being shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. You know, have your eyes open to to what it is you're called to do. Beware of men. I like that. Beware of men. Okay, that's mankind, humanity. It doesn't say you know, look out for the men. The women are okay. (laughs) It says beware of men, and that itself is is a testimony, isn't it? Remember, you're going out into ministry now. Wherever you go, just look out for the people. <laughs> okay, watch out for men. Watch out for humanity. Cursed is man who trusts in man. You better be trusting in the Lord in these things. And and your brothers and sisters in Christ are those that we uh, that we uh, no longer uh, deem according to the flesh. We no longer regard any man according to the flesh, and we start we now start looking at one another in our resurrection, in our reality, our position in Christ. All right. Um, Matthew chapter 20, verse 19. And uh, he told them this was going to happen. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve aside by themselves and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him and on the third day he will be raised up. So why is the scourging of Jesus significant? Because the scourging of Jesus is part of the prophecy that he made regarding his time in Jerusalem. That he would be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. Where did they take him when they arrested him from the garden? They didn't take him to Pilate. They took him to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. What was the verdict that morning? Guilty. And then what did they do? They handed him over to the Gentiles. It was only then that they took him over to Pilate. Hand him over to Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. So everything is happening just as he said. So why are they not encouraged related to the last part? On the third day he will be raised up. (laughs) Okay. And there they are, all gloomy, all despondent, all uh, uh, without faith, in total despair, because he was... Delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. He was condemned. He was handed over to the Gentiles. He was mocked. He was scourged. He was crucified. Boo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo. Until Mary shows up Sunday morning and says He has risen. Well, that was the last part of His promise there. Raised up on the third day. Alright? right. I believe Jesus employed a literal hermeneutic. And He did so right here. Did so everywhere. All right. Then uh, 2334, Matthew 2334. You know, all of these Matthew references are, are interesting because he didn't use it in chapter 27. Okay. He chose rather to use the fragello, all right, the fra- fragello in uh, Matthew 27. When he could have used uh, mastigao. he used it all these other places. All right. Um, Matthew 2334. Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues, persecute from city to city. Again, application, great tribulation. This is uh, eschatological for Israel in preparing them for the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, let's see. Then Mark ten thirty-four is going to be. I think parallel to Matthew 10. I meant to mark that. I usually put little hints on my slide to remind me that we've already read that. Mark 10:34 is the uh, promise of the upcoming uh, crucifixion, so it's parallel to Matthew 20. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Luke 18:33. again the prophecy he will be handed over to the gentiles will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon after they have scourged him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise again John 19:1 is our passage today and then the biggie Hebrews 12:6 Hebrews 12:6 because this now applies to us this now applies to us Now, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, He scourges every son whom He receives. Now, we we apply that. It's a quote from Proverbs 3. It does apply to us. It applies to believers in every stewardship, believers in every age. But now let's back up a little bit and examine ourselves and say, well, wait a minute. Is there a bigger picture of what's happening in Hebrews 12.6 besides us? Can we view that verse from a focal point of considering Jesus Christ? All right for those whom the Lord loves he disciplines well who does God the father love more than God the son than Jesus Christ and so when God the father disciplines Jesus Christ does he do so in a love application say well Jesus never sinned Jesus didn't need that discipline we're not just disciplined when we need it or when we it's not always deserved suffering there's also undeserved suffering it's a part of the father's discipline part of the scourging So those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges. That's our term. Mastagao. Every son whom he receives. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like the meat's been ripped off the bone? (laughs) Metaphorically speaking. That God the Father's putting you through it. Just make sure when he's putting you through it that it's undeserved suffering. Okay? Much more rewardable. Deserved suffering, you still got to take it, but it doesn't give the same glory to God that the undeserved suffering does. So as we look and we back up a little bit here, we see that this whole chapter is all about Christ. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, the mockery. Did that bother him at all? The purple robe, the spitting, the slap, the bowing, hail, king of the Jews. Did that that bother him at all? No, it says he despised the shame. Despising. He valued it as worthless. We've done word studies on that before. Valued it as worthless and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So it's all about the Lord is our example and what the Father put him through. So now, these are some of the concepts I want us to start chewing on because I think we do a good job. Ethel, before class started, before the recording got going, uh, Ethel mentioned uh, you know, the, 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 the blessings of being able to understand that Jesus was crucif- crucified according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That God the Father is the one who sacrificed his son. As Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, the Father sacrificed Jesus Christ. And that's the entire point. The Father sacrificed Jesus Christ. And there was a Roman component. There was a Jewish component. There was a Satanic component. There was um, a Bolander component, because, you know, I'm a sinner. Um, We all deserve what he endured, right? But now, can we take this concept? We understand his death was substitutionary. But now let's also say, well, what about Gethsemane? Who was doing that to Jesus there? What about uh, the judgment seat we're going to see here? What about the beating and the mocking? Was that only the Romans doing that? Or was the Father also doing that? Was there a component to God the Father enforcing that humility on His Son? And the more we chew on it, the more we see that working, that humility working, I think we'll see really what Isaiah 53 is spelling out. That the Father was pleased to crush him. That God the Father uh, observed every single step of the way. That these aren't just incidental things that happen along the way. Alright? So, anyway, give that some thought as we chew on that. Mustagao is, uh, is, again, it's a fairly common term. 30 times in the Septuagint, including the Proverbs 3.12 use, the one that's uh, quoted in uh, Hebrews 12.6. Four times in the Apostolic Fathers, including 1st Clement. And I went ahead and created a link to this so that it won't have the problem I had last week in trying to figure out how to open 1st Clement. And um, back up for a context on this. Specific reference is 56.4. "...therefore let us also intercede for those who are involved in some transgression, that forbearance and humility may be given them, so that they may submit, not to us, but to the will of God." All right, when you see a brother in sin, do you pray for him? Do you intercede on their behalf? Or do you just write them off and say, well, they're going to get it, God's going to get them? Okay? "...for in this way the merciful remembrance of them in the presence of God and the saints will be fruitful and perfect for them. Let us accept correction, which no one ought to resent, dear friends." The reproof which which we give one another is good and exceedingly useful, for it unites us with the will of God. For thus says the Holy Word, The Lord has indeed disciplined me, but has not handed me over to death. For whom the Lord loved, He disciplines, and He punishes every son whom He accepts. And it goes on for additional application. Anyway, this is not Scripture, by the way. This is church fathers. This is Clement writing to Corinth the same Corinth that Paul wrote to in two epistles, this is now Clement writing to the Corinthians with uh, an application as it comes from uh, Hebrews 12.6. When God the Father disciplines us, it's for our blessing. We need to submit to it. We need to appreciate it. We need to be thankful that He loves us enough to do so. What child is there that's without discipline? The Scripture answers that also. The child that the Father doesn't love. The, the, The bastard. You're all illegitimate children. Okay, and uh, if, if we can somehow put ourselves in the back in a culture that uh, actually holds bastardy to be something shameful, um, then maybe the full impact of, of that that ma- that passage will will hit us in such a way. No, we should rejoice in our fatherly discipline. It shows that we're legitimate. It shows that he acknowledges us. He claims us. He doesn't tolerate our um, besmirching of his name. We can come to appreciate that as well. All right, the mastics, the noun, is used in Hebrews 11.36 and Acts 22.24. And the verb mastizo also is in Acts 22, the very next verse, 25. So two more passages, Hebrews 11.36 and then Acts 22. We'll uh, we'll wrap this up. Hebrews 11.36, talking about these great heroes from the Old Testament, men and women of whom the world is not worthy um look what they went through by faith they conquered kingdoms performed acts of righteousness obtained promises shut the mouths of lions quenched the power of fire escaped the edge of the sword from weakness were made strong became mighty in war put foreign armies to flight women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured not accepting their release so they might obtain a better Resurrection, And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. That was the legend about uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And yet you and I expect this nice, easy, cushy, prosperity theology lifestyle, right? Uh, You know, hardship for us is um, it's raining this morning and my convertible top is not as waterproof as it used to be. In all honesty, it never really was all that great. Um, And 14 years later, it's uh, you get a little, little, little dripped on in the rain. And I know I'm suffering for Jesus. We're just so uh, we've got such hardships in uh, in the Christian way of life. acts twenty two twenty five. The point is is uh, this was the pattern before Christ. Christ is the pinnacle, And who are we to say that we are above our master? Our student is not above his master. And if he was so treated, then so too. Will we? Why do I deserve to not receive that kind of treatment? Acts 22, verses 24 and 25. We'll see both the noun and the verb here. And um, one of Paul's multiple defenses here. Uh, Verse 22 says, They listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. All right, as soon as he said, uh, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. (gasps) Tragic. (coughs) Gentiles? Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were crying and throwing off the cloaks, tossing dust in the air. And the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging, so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. And when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. And now the uh, centurion here is going to exercise more caution. All right. So this is what we're looking at. Now, point C. The Roman scourging should not be viewed as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53.5. And we're going to look at this here. I think we'll probably spend the rest of this hour in Isaiah 53. The Roman scourging should not be viewed as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53:5. It was a physical preparation for the spiritual scourging God the Father would effect upon his son. It was a physical preparation for the spiritual scourging God the Father would effect upon his son. Although, you'll read commentaries that will tell you that the scourging was fulfillment of of uh, by his wounds you were healed. All right? By his stripes you were healed. Well, okay. If his scourging healed me, then he didn't need to go to the cross. <laughs> he could have just stopped right there and said, okay, I've been whipped. Uh, I've, I've redeemed humanity and uh, started, you know, blasting Roman soldiers or something. I mean, that's what I would have done. But <laughs> okay. So, join me in Isaiah 53. Instead, he continues to pray, "Father, hold it not against them; they know not what they do." All right, Isaiah Isaiah 53:5 has four lines of poetry, the final portion of which does say, "By his scourging we are healed." By his scourging we are healed. And so if I rip that out of the entire context of of one-fourth of verse 5, or if I rip it out of its larger context of chapter 53 as a whole, then I might be tempted to build a doctrine on by his scourging we are healed. But I can't do that. It's not right to do that. We've got to understand how this scourging fits into the remainder of what this chapter is teaching. Because notice, he was pierced for our transgressions. It starts with pierced and then crushed, and then chastening, and then scourging. There are a, a multitude of verbs that are applied here by God the Father on God the Son. And so we need to understand everything that's taken place on this night. From from the moment the betrayer went out to, and Jesus said, what you do, do quickly, to the closing of the door and the, the upper room discourse and all of the great prophetic messages that were uh, given at that point to the arrest, to the prayer in the garden, to the anguish of his soul in the garden—it's a part of this verse. He said, "My soul is anguished to the point of death," and he hadn't even seen a Roman guard yet. That was in the Garden of Gethsemane. What was happening? God the Father was already working on His Son, assigning the guilt, assigning the wrath, assigning the punishment, deserved and undeserved, even before He was on a cross. And this includes the scourging. All right. So who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. And so we see, I mean, we've got a, a panorama in this chapter, right? We have uh, his birth, his childhood. He didn't, he didn't just manifest on the earth as an adult man on a war horse, start killing everybody and conquering. He actually was birthed. He had to grow up as a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. And uh, as I referenced this a little bit ago when I was talking about Pilate's last-ditch effort to maybe shock the mob into relenting that maybe the, the gruesome side of a, of a post-scourging um, and mocked uh, king dressed in the crown of thorns and the robe and all of that, maybe that visual would just shock them. Alright? It didn't. And honestly, most often it doesn't. Sometimes it's remarkable what we're no longer shocked by when we're so deep into our sin We're so deep into our sin. Things that would normally shock us don't shock us anymore because we've slid that deep into the ugliness of what we're doing. So he was despised and forsaken of men. Despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now when did this process happen? Okay. This actually was building for the weeks and the months leading up to the Passion Week. It includes the Passion Week. It includes the very night in which He's betrayed, despised and forsaken. Even His closest disciples fled. Like one from whom men hide their face, despised and we did not esteem Him. Again, Pilate puts him forward and says, Behold the man, crucify Him, crucify Him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Now, uh, you end up doing a ton of vocabulary studies here with respect to um, griefs, okay? sorrows, transgressions, iniquities, and all of it is being imputed to Jesus Christ. You have to start to decide when was the sorrow imputed? When was the sickness imputed? When was the sin imputed? When was the iniquity imputed? Was was all of it imputed on the cross? Was that before the darkness fell or after the darkness fell? All right. And uh, was some of it before the cross? And I've already given some of this away because we taught Gethsemane. And when we taught Gethsemane, we saw that the... Um, the crushing and the grief down from verse 10 there was applied in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he testified of that. Alright. These were uh, imputed to him at various stages. Alright. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. So does that verse blame the Romans or the Jews? Smitten of God and afflicted. Smitten of God and afflicted. This is a judicial punishment. God the Father is administering the only justice that will satisfy Him entirely. It's God's judgment. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Okay, so piercing is that? Uh, is that well, that's got to be cross, right? Because that's piercing hands and feet nailed to the wood. Crushed? When was he crushed? Was he crushed? Were his bones pulverized? No, not one bone actually was broken. And chastened and scourged. In other words, what we have here in a panorama, specifically, I think it's, 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 I, I love the fact that piercing precedes scourging. In the poetry, whereas in the in the fulfillment, obviously, the scourging preceded the piercing. OK, but what we have here is this panorama from his tender shoot childhood all the way to his adulthood, to his rejection by man, to his accepting of the grief, to his going to the cross, even to the victory after the cross. OK, we're going to see the, uh, the victory after the cross in this chapter. And so this is what I call panorama, prophetic panorama in uh, not unique to Isaiah 53, throughout a lot of prophetic portions. Each of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. There's, there's no one that deserves their own eternal life because all of us are in rebellion against God. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. That's why I say it should have been me. It was my iniquity, but it fell on Him. He took the, the wrath. He accepted The punishment that belonged to me because the iniquity was mine, not his. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And recall we, we focused a lot. Well, when were the times he kept his mouth shut? When were the times he kept his mouth open? When was the time he would testify to Pilate, I am a king? When was the time in standing before Herod, he wouldn't say a word? Okay. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Oppression and judgment. Is that man's oppression? Man's judgment? Or God's oppression and God's judgment? And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Boy, that's a fact. You know, uh, the Jews were convinced that he deserved it. That was their that was their sentence. Guilty, he's a blasphemer, he deserves to die. He deserved it. They, even in later Jewish legends in the Talmud they write about how, you know, that Nazarene was, was rightfully executed. He was he was a heretic. He was a blasphemer. They still to this day. You know, you give the gospel to a Jewish person today, <laughs> you know, he's gonna, his his whole approach to Jesus was he was a heretic. To this day. That's why uh, the, the, the revival that's going to happen after the rapture, when they look upon him whom they pierced. That's why the faith of the, of the 144,000 that do come to Christ, they, they place their faith in the Christ whom they crucified. Becomes uh, very significant. His grave was assigned with wicked men. You see the panorama continues. Now we're up to his burial. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Crucify between two thieves. Those are the wicked men and the rich man, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who, uh, donates the, uh, who actually accomplishes the, the burial activity. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But, and again, just so that the readers of Isaiah don't lose the emphasis, here it is again. Yahweh was pleased to crush him. There's that crushing again. Is this uh, a physical crushing? Is this bones through a... a, No, this is a spiritual crushing. Putting him to grief. Putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. Remember, this is part of the, the, the agreement between the father and the son. The father put forth this plan for redemption. And the son agreed to it in his own capacity. He said, yes, I will submit to that. Yes, I will do that. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. You are the priest and the offering. And Jesus said, yes. I will render myself. I will be the priest that offers myself up. I am also the sacrifice. And Jesus Christ agreed to this. And he agreed to this before the foundation of the world. It's an amazing thing. Remember, when Abraham and Isaac walked up that mountain, who was carrying the wood? Okay? Isaac was carrying the wood. If He would render Himself a guilt offering, He will see His offspring. He will prolong His days. Wow. Children of God the Son? He will see His offspring. He will prolong His days. Okay, so death is not the end. Prolonged days will follow the death. We understand resurrection. And what about offspring? When is God the Son going to have offspring? You understand, you and I... Yeah, I know, You've, you already know where I'm going with this. You've read the book. You and I are not sons of Jesus Christ. You and I are sons of God the Father. We're brothers of Jesus Christ and sisters, right? Sons and daughters of God the Father. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ has work to do coming up in which he will fulfill his function as the everlasting father. Wonderful, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, everlasting father. All right. When will Jesus Christ have sons? It's in the new heavens and new earth. It's a thousand generations of those who love him. And he will identify as their, they will be my P.I., uh, their children. I will be their father. Anyway, um, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So many people assign that to the millennium, and yet the millennium is not an age of blessing. The millennium is a thousand years of, of, uh, you know, what's in his hand there? The rod of iron is what's in his hand there, not the good pleasure of Yahweh. The rod of iron is in his hand. He rules the Gentiles with that rod of iron for the thousand-year millennium. But the thousand-generation fullness of time is when the good pleasure of Yahweh prospers in his hand. Notice now, as a result of the anguish of his soul, As a result of the anguish of his soul. And this is what was developed in Gethsemane. This is what he accepted in Gethsemane. As a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. We know, we've we've been taught the doctrine of propitiation. We've been taught that the Father was satisfied. We've been taught that Jesus Christ's spiritual death on the cross satisfied the Father's righteous demands. And and for most of my life, I just believed that because it was. Yes, I believe it. It's so. Propitiation for my sins, not mine only, but also those of the whole world. The Father was satisfied. But here's a verse that tells me why the Father was satisfied. And it's not just because the father said so. It's not just because uh, Christ did it and the father was satisfied. Well, why was the father satisfied? And it's spelled out for us here as a result of the anguish of his soul. It's a consequence of the soul anguish. It's a consequence of what he learned in the soul anguish. By his knowledge. Not knowledge he gained in Bible study. Knowledge he gained in the anguish of his soul. What is it you learn in the anguish of your soul? Things that you cannot learn otherwise. Remember Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. There's things you only learn when God the Father brings you through the deepest struggles you ever face. In any event, as a result of the anguish of his soul, it is a consequence that Yahweh is satisfied. By means of, as an instrument, his knowledge, my righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. In other words, until he has that, he's not qualified. Okay? Until he has that, he's not qualified. Now, he's qualified as being sinless and perfect and a sinless substitute, sure, but the justifier, that requires, according to this verse, this particular knowledge. This, this knowledge is instrumentally the means by which my servant will justify the many. Hope, we, hope we're clear on that. His, his sinlessness, his sinless perfection qualified him to, to, to be our substitute and to fulfill that pattern. It, it, it made him eligible to not need a, a justifier himself. But it, his, it was not his sinlessness that qualified him to be a justifier. Is that making sense? I don't go on long, but I want this to get across. Sinless perfection, no spot, no blemish, meant he didn't need to be justified. But it didn't qualify him to do the justifying. This was his uh, by this knowledge the righteous one my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities therefore I will allot him a portion with the great he will divide the booty with the strong there is reward on the other side he was qualified he was prepared he was suited the father was satisfied therefore now he's going to receive the maximum reward for all eternity because he poured out his soul to death what was the sacrifice what did he offer his soul. He poured out His soul to death. His nephesh. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He Himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Alright. It wasn't the physical scourging that saved us. I hope we're clear on that. Father, thank You for today. We've got a good jump on it, Father. We'll have more next week, Lord willing. Thank you for uh, all the, uh, the depth of doctrine, Father, where we understand your will, your son's agreement to that will, what he achieved that pleased you, what he achieved that satisfied you, what he achieved, Father, to justify us. And, Father, all of this work between him and you is uh, the guarantee, Father, that it cannot be undone, it cannot be lost, it cannot be thrown away. There's nothing we can do to lose it because there's nothing we did to, to make it happen. It was all about Your plan and His obedience to Your plan. And that's, Father, what holds us so secure. I thank You for such truth. Help us to chew on these things. If there's ideas and thoughts we never thought of this way before, then, then keep us praying, keep us chewing, keep us hungering after righteousness. We thank You in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.